Please help me give a very warm welcome to Emma Klein. Hi. <laughs> um, so this is my third book event, uh, and also the first event I've been at where I have family members in attendance. So one of my little sisters is here. Uh, she'd never been to a book event, so she really wanted to know whether I would be making constant eye contact with her and whether she should be prepared for that. I told her it would be, you know, on and off. <laughs> um, so I'll just read a little from the beginning of the book. I looked up because of the laughter and kept looking because of the girls. I noticed their hair first, long and uncombed then their jewelry catching the sun. The three of them were far enough away that I saw only the periphery of their features, but it didn't matter. I knew they were different from everyone else in the park. Families milling in a vague line, waiting for sausages and burgers from the open grill. Women in checked blouses scooting into their boyfriends' sides. Kids tossing eucalyptus buttons at the feral-looking chickens that overran the strip. These long-haired girls seemed to glide above all that was happening around them, tragic and separate, like royalty in exile. I studied the girls with a shameless, blatant gape. It didn't seem possible that they might look over and notice me. My hamburger was forgotten in my lap, the breeze blowing in minnow stink from the river. It was an age when I'd immediately scan and rank other girls, keeping up a constant tally of how I fell short, and I saw right away that the black-haired one was the prettiest. I had expected this, even before I'd been able to make out their faces. There was a suggestion of otherworldliness hovering around her, a dirty smock dress barely covering her ass. She was flanked by a skinny redhead and an older girl, dressed with the same shabby afterthought as if dredged from a lake, all their cheap rings like a second set of knuckles. They were messing with an uneasy threshold, prettiness and ugliness at the same time, and a ripple of awareness followed them through the park. Mothers glancing around for their children, moved by some feeling they couldn't name. Women reaching for their boyfriend's hands. The sun spiked through the trees like always, the drowsy willows, the hot wind gusting over the picnic blankets, but the familiarity of the day was disturbed by the path the girls cut across the regular world, sleek and thoughtless as sharks breaching the water. It was the end of the 60s, or the summer before the end, and that's what it seemed like, an endless, formless summer. The hate populated with white-garbed process members handing out their oat-colored pamphlets. The jasmine along the roads that year blooming particularly heady and full. Everyone was healthy, tan, and heavy with decoration. And if you weren't, that was a thing, too. You could be some moon creature, chiffon over the lampshades, on a kachari cleanse that stained all your dishes with turmeric. But that was all happening somewhere else, not in Petaluma with its low-hipped ranch houses, the covered wagon perpetually parked in front of the Hi-Ho restaurant, the sun-scorched crosswalks. I was 14, but looked much younger. People liked to say this to me. Connie swore I could pass for 16, but we told each other a lot of lies. We'd been friends all through junior high. Connie waiting for me outside classrooms as, pati as patient as a cow, 
all our energy subsumed into the theatrics of friendship. She was plump but didn't dress like it, in cropped cotton shirts with Mexican embroidery, two tight skirts that left an angry rim on her upper thighs. I'd always liked her in a way I'd never had to think about, like the fact of my own hands. Come September, I'd be sent off to the same boarding school my mother had gone to. They'd built a well-tended campus around an old convent in Monterey, the lawn smooth and sloped, shreds of fog in the mornings, brief hits of the nearness of salt water. It was an all-girls school, and I'd have to wear a uniform. Low-heeled shoes and no makeup, midi blouses threaded with navy ties. It was a holding place, really, enclosed by a stone wall and populated with bland, moon-faced daughters, campfire girls, and future teachers shipped off to learn 160 words a minute shorthand, to make dreamy, overheated promises to be one another's bridesmaids at royal Hawaiian weddings. My impending departure forced a newly critical distance on my friendship with Connie. I'd started to notice certain things, almost against my will, how Connie said, the best way to get over someone is to get under someone else. As if we were shop girls in London instead of inexperienced adolescents in the farm belt of Sonoma County. We licked batteries to feel a metallic jolt on the tongue, rumored to be one-eighteenth of an orgasm. <laughs> it pained me to imagine how our twosome appeared to others, marked as the kind of girls who belonged to each other, those sexless fixtures of high schools. Every day after school, we'd click seamlessly into the familiar track of the afternoons, waste the hours at some industrious task, following Vidal Sassoon's suggestions for raw egg smoothies to strengthen hair, or picking at blackheads with the tip of a sterilized sewing needle. The constant project of our girl selves seemed to require odd and precise attentions. As an adult, I wonder at the pure volume of time I wasted, the feast and famine we were taught to expect from the world, the countdowns in magazines that urged us to prepare 30 days in advance for the first day of school. Day 28, apply a face mask of avocado and honey. Day 14, test your makeup look in different lights, natural, office, dusk. Back then, I was so attuned to attention. I dressed to provoke love, tugging my neckline lower, settling a wistful stare on my face whenever I went out in public that implied many deep and promising thoughts should anyone happen to glance over. As a child, I had once been part of a charity dog show and paraded around a pretty collie on a leash, a silk bandana around its neck. How thrilled I'd been at the sanctioned performance, the way I went up to strangers and let them admire the dog, my smile as indulgent and constant as a salesgirl, and how vacant I'd felt when it was over, when no one needed to look at me anymore. I waited to be told what was good about me. I wondered later if this was why there were so many more women than men at the ranch. All that time I had spent readying myself. The articles that taught me life was really just a waiting room until someone noticed you. The boys had spent that time becoming themselves. Thanks. That was great, thank you.
Um, so as I, uh, as I mentioned, this novel has been very highly anticipated. I first heard about it nine months ago, which is a really long time in advance for a debut writer. Um, so I just wanted to see kind of how it feels to um, have your debut novel come out and have so much attention um, nationwide for it. What, what are you going through? Um, it's like a mild acid trip all the time. <laughs> it's like a little unexpected. Um, but I, I feel like it's this thing that runs parallel to your real life and doesn't intersect and is this whole other realm that refers to you but doesn't actually have to do much with you. <laughs> uh, can you talk a bit about uh, your own background and how you're inspired to write a novel about uh, the subject? Yeah, um, I'm from Northern California, Sonoma County, um, and as you guys know, being in L.A., uh, I feel like California is still so haunted by the 60s. Uh, I feel like everyone's sort of dealing with the leftovers in some way or another, especially in Northern California, um, where there were so many communes and groups, some of which still survive today. Um, So I sort of grew up with all that mythology and all the kind of mythic visual tropes of that era. And uh, I really wanted to write about it in a way that engaged girlhood at the same time, which was sort of a story I felt hadn't been told about that time. Yeah, a lot of the books written about uh, Charles Manson or the other sort of culty California um, scenes focus on the leaders. And so what inspired you to write about the girls and the followers? Yeah, uh, I think we're all sick of the charismatic cult leader. I think it's a really (laughs) familiar trope, and we sort of know everything about him. Um, And I I just didn't see any any interest there or any sort of tension that would would lend itself to a novel. And I really like the idea of writing a book where where that character is sidelined in a way and almost made into this bit player. Uh, And it's been funny, a few people, usually men, (laughs) are like, wow, I really wish there was more of that that Russell character. (laughs) Like, why did you, you know, maybe a few more scenes with him? (laughs) What's his story? Um, so the events of the novel take place in mostly in 1969, which is a time that is well-remembered by a lot of readers, but before you were born. So how did you research that time period, and how did you make sure to get the details right? Um, I think I'd read and sort of encountered other cultural material from that time period before I ever thought of it as research. I was just naturally drawn to it. Um, and then both my parents grew up in California. My dad's from L.A. His brother's sitting right there. <laughs> Um, and so they talked a lot about that time period and the Manson murders for both of them loomed really large as this sort of defining moment Um, and then also my mom kept a diary when she was 13 which I read which was very funny because I expected it to be filled with all kinds of amazing details and like she'd write about oh you know man landed on the moon today like what an important moment but it was all like I got a terrible haircut today and like I hate this person I love this person and so I was thinking about that when I was writing the book just that people often don't experience their cultural moment you know through a wide historical lens usually you know they're focused on their own consciousness and the people who are in their immediate orbit. Uh, So I didn't want it to be a Forrest Gump novel (laughs) where they sort of interact with every major event. (laughs) Um, What kind of books were you reading while you were writing this? 
Um, a few books that I really went back to a lot, just in terms of structure and also tone. Uh, Veronica by Mary Gateskill, um, which I think is such an amazing book about friendship, this sort of ambiguous friendship between these two women. And also, to me, really speaks to the, the way the past can run alongside the present, um, how the past doesn't really stay in its tidy corner and sort of can haunt you in a way. Um, and then Lori Moore has a novella with a funny title, uh, Who Will Run the Frog Hospital? Um, that's also about female friendship and like these defining summers or moments in your life and sort of how you make sense of them as an older person. Yeah, female friendship is a really huge part of this book, not just um, with Evie and Connie, but also Suzanne and some of the other women. What were you um, exploring and getting at um, with these relationships when you're writing? Um, I think I like the idea of a sort of alternative love story, um, writing a book where where this friendship sort of takes the place that you'd expect a love story to occupy. Uh, and I think friendship is so great and is really having a, a great moment in literature, I feel like. Ferrante um, and a lot of other people are writing about it. And uh, I think because friendship doesn't have a lot of cultural coding around it in the way that relations, other relationships do, uh, family or sort of romantic relationships. And for that reason, they can sort of encompass all these murky feelings. Hmm. Um, and uh, sort of along the same lines, the women in this book are very conscious of sort of the male gaze and then also of other women and how other women are being looked at. Um, so um, can you talk a little bit about exploring that phenomenon? Yeah. Um, I was thinking a lot about the male gaze and then also it's sort of what's its opposite which is the female gaze and sort of how do women take in the male gaze and sort of make it a part of the way they see the world and begin to objectify other women and self-objectify um, almost in preparation or response to this overwhelming sort of male gaze. Um, and so I really liked writing a narrator who was hyper-conscious of other people's appearances and um, almost in the way that you'd expect a, a male narrator might be. Like, she's very assessing, and she's constantly looking at these beauty metrics um, in a way that I think is a little claustrophobic, even. Um, you did a piece for the Paris Review um, that was called See Me, which I highly recommend. It's really, really good. Um, it was sort of about your own coming of age. So can you talk a little bit about that and maybe how that those experiences informed this book? Yeah. Um, first of all, I would never write a personal essay again. <laughs> it's horrible because it sort of follows you around forever. I feel like you should be over 30, <laughs> and that's the only way you should be allowed to post anything personal on the Internet. Uh, but I wrote this essay, which is now up, and I can't do anything about it. I don't recommend it. Nobody read it. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it was sort of the, the inciting incident or whatever. Um, when I was 13... I sort of had a pen pal relationship with this older man, uh, Rodney Bingenheimer, who I think lives in LA. He's probably like back there, like muttering. <laughs> um, and it was totally a benign relationship. Like it was almost laughably innocent, just like little cartoons and like, hi, what are you doing? Um, and, you know, nothing came of it. We probably exchanged, you know, 10 letters or whatever. And then just as an adult, I looked back on this relationship. And it didn't strike me as bizarre at all at the time. Because <laughs> why, you know, it's so normal. Um, but as an adult, 
yeah, I was looking at this and thinking how strange it was and wondering, you know, how, how vulnerable I was at that age that, that the moment somebody shined any kind of beacon of attention on me, I was like happy to receive it and didn't question too much its origin. Um, so yeah, the essay is sort of about that desire to be seen and known and sort of connecting it with what I saw when I thought about the Manson women and sort of the pictures of their faces, which felt very familiar to me. Um, and what did you want to kind of get across about California, uh, the mythic state of California in the 1960s in this book? Um, California is so... I, I'm just... I feel like I'm its exact audience. You know, everything about it, like, really lands with me. Uh, I think a lot of it is just this beautiful landscape married to this real danger at least in Northern California, um, like the beaches are so beautiful, but people are constantly drowning or sort of dashed against the rocks. Or like it, it really is paradise, but it's built on this fault line. So you have this sense that the land is actively trying to like rid itself of you, <laughs> which I really like as a sort of tension. And then I think it also draws a certain kind of person. Um, something about it being you know, a bit untethered from from the history of even the East Coast. Um, I think people come here to become someone else often. Uh, or, or, yeah, to just look for something outside themselves, which is a sort of shaky spiritual foundation for a state that <laughs> lends itself to, to weirdos. <laughs> um, can you talk a little bit about the process of writing this book? How long did it take? And what was um, it? Yeah, I had, I had been working on a novel for a few years before I started this one, which was just a straight commune novel. Um, and then I, I was doing an MFA at Columbia, and I sort of thought of this idea of this woman, an older woman, that was sort of the character who came first, who had been part of this infamous cult in her youth, and sort of what it would look like, how she would form the rest of her life around that fact. Um, and so after I had that sort of inciting moment, then it took me about two years to write it. Um, and the majority of the time I was living in this little shed, uh, which was like 9 by 12 in my friend's backyard. And I had no internet, which was, I highly recommend that if you are thinking about writing a novel. Because I think it was the only way I could have gotten anything done. Um, who are some authors, you mentioned Mary Gates Gill, uh, who are some other authors who influenced you? Um, Scott Spencer, who wrote this amazing novel called Endless Love. Um, which I, I don't, I can't think of when it came out, but it's it's one of the most perfect novels, uh, and it's sort of about the state of being a teenager as like a state of this really pure psychosis, <laughs> like you're 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 basically unfit for human company when you're a teenager, but your feelings are also so pure, um, and it's this person who just refuses to get over their first love, and just decides that they just won't. Um, so I love that book. Uh, and then growing up, let's see, uh, I loved Stephen Milhauser, who's sort of a heightened, I loved his heightened language. Um, and I was a big Sherlock Holmes fan. Um, and what are you working on now? Uh, I'm working on a novel that is not set in the 60s. <laughs> <laughs> um Want to give any more details or not yet? No. Okay. <laughs> All right, at this point, um, I'd like to open it up if any of you have any questions uh, for Emma. First one's the hardest. Don't be afraid. Go ahead. This is kind of a spoiler, so tell me if you don't want that. 
But I wondered, after reading it, if Suzanne kicked Evie out of the car because she was being protective, or if it was just a, another crazy impulse. Yeah, um, that's a spoiler. <laughs> Nobody has to buy the book. No, forget it. Um, yeah, I sort of wanted it to be ambiguous. And to me, the book is a lot about sort of the stories we tell ourselves about what the things that happen to us. And I was really interested in this idea of, like, I, I think we're used to stories having some kind of redemptive narrative or people learning something, there being some kind of moral. And I really liked that this is a person who, who just cannot make meaning out of this summer, really, and is, is really trapped in the ambiguous morality of it. Um, so I think it's all her projection. Like, there's not really a one answer that's true, because it's all from Evie, and it's all a story she's telling herself. Yes? When you were sort of coming up with the setting for the book, and obviously you had sort of tied to the, the Manson movies, was there any sort of trickiness in trying to make it not too similar, but also... You're talking about a different part of the state, trying to translate you know, events that happened down here to another setting. Is there any sort of challenging part of that, or parts that you felt were maybe a little bit, you know, should have been more realistic or less realistic? Yeah, um, it was important to me not to write like a thinly veiled. You know, like um, when people write books after a movie. <laughs> I don't know if you guys have ever. It's like a no, I don't a novelization. Um, I didn't want it to be like that, and I don't, I mean, I hope it's not. Uh, but to me, I was, I was after some kind of, you know, there's a little germ of truth or, or some glimmer of interest I saw in the Manson story, and then it's really a matter of exploring that totally untethered to the reality of it. Um, and I feel like in that way you almost get closer to, to something that you, you can't if you're, you know, uh, having to be a slave to every detail of, of history. Or sort of retreading familiar, familiar stories. Um, do you feel girlhood lost ground or gained ground since those Um. Yeah, I don't know. That's what I like about writing novels is that you don't really have to have a good answer to questions. <laughs> you can sort of just pose them, <laughs> which I'm better at than actually answering them. Um, and I mean, part of why there is a contemporary narrator who has these encounters with a, a teenager is just I was I wanted to put those two things together um, and sort of think about it. But to me, there are. are you know, it, I think it comes out in different ways. Certainly the internet, I think, facilitates a, a different kind of self-objectification. Um, but the desire to me seems to be the same, which is to be seen. Yes? You just read passages from the book, and the passage, uh, Life as a Waiting Room, Waiting to be Recognized. When you wrote that, did you have any idea that somebody was going to say Emma? No. That's kind of when I heard you say that. <laughs> You're out of the waiting room now. <laughs> Take me back. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't think anyone writes a book. You know, the the only person who really read 
drafts of this book while I was working on it was one of my little sisters, not the one who's here. <laughs> She's lazy. <laughs> but the other one, um, I have four younger sisters. <laughs> uh, so she was sort of my ideal reader, and I really didn't think too far beyond her, which I think was really helpful. It's a helpful way to write a novel, not thinking too much about any eventual audience. Or, and it, it does keep it. It's this lovely, pure moment that you wish you could go back to when it's over. <laughs> Yeah, in the back. Uh, in researching the 60s, was there any surprising element to you that really helped shape uh, how you saw a character change the direction you had one previously? Yeah, uh, for me, you know, it wasn't any sort of big shocking detail about, like, the, the crimes or different cults or stuff. For me, it was more about the everyday details that sort of illuminated um, this, like, much more gruesome violence. Uh, for me, that was more... It, it sort of changed the way I was writing about the book. I, I thought a lot about um, sort of the the way violence is woven into everyday relationships. And I think having those little real details that make you realize what a day might have looked like, I think it gives almost a more frightening face onto this almost unfathomable thing because you can recognize parts of yourself in it or you know think about what they ate or you know what they might have spent the morning doing. Yep, over there. Hi. Um, I was trying to read it, and she reviewed it, and she said she felt you captured the teenage girls' voice. She said the tone and the like, you felt it was perfect. Was there any influences for like for that? Um. Yeah, I I think to me it was just really important to to write a teenage girl and give her her full humanity. Um, I feel like teenage girls are so objectified and given so little subjectivity and agency. Uh, so just to, to write a complex character. Um, so I'm glad it, it came across that way. And, and one I just encountered, and I was so glad I read it after I wrote this book, or I feel I would have been too intimidated and wouldn't have written it, but Diary of a Teenage Girl. I don't know if anyone has read it or seen the movie, but like my heart started pounding a little <laughs> while I was uh, reading it, and I think because it is still so rare to encounter, you know, a full, um, fully human teenage girl, um, yeah, it's like the antidote to Lolita in a way. <laughs> You're like, oh. Any other questions? Yes. Why do I write? <laughs> oh no. Um, I don't know. <laughs> uh, I mean, I think, you know, you start because you love reading so much. Um, it's like a great gateway drug to uh, to writing. Um, and then, you know, I, I've done it. I don't know. Those are terrible questions to be thinking about right now. <laughs> I refuse to answer. <laughs> but thank you for your question. <laughs> I think you definitely scared off whoever the next person was. <laughs> We have time for a few more. Yes. Do you see a connection between a militaristic nation like the U.S. at a time of war and mass murder? Do you see any connection between the power of being military, this huge might in the world, and wanting to kill other people? Another question where I'm like, whoa. Uh, I don't know. I've never thought about it. Um, yeah, I mean, for this book specifically, I was thinking about the way violence, uh, we're sort of used to externalized male violence. I think that's very familiar to us at this point, um, like heartbreakingly familiar. Uh, 
you know, it, it's not surprising when men act out their sort of pain and suffering and inflict it on other people. And in this instance, I was really interested in, in what the female expression of violence looks at, like and where it might come from. I think we're a lot more comfortable with women turning the violence inwards and sort of having eating disorders or, you know, cutting. Those are very familiar narratives of, of like, teenage girlhood. Um, and that's why I think the Manson story especially is, is particular and strange because it is this externalized female violence. Any questions? Yes. You're definitely in the spotlight right now, and you have a lot going for you in the future, too. How are you escaping and just keeping yourself you, Emma? Like, how are you, <laughs> how are you trying to keep that all? Because you're such a unique individual. I'm related to her also. <laughs> it's not like a stranger being like, you are so unique. <laughs> uh, well, Corey, <laughs> um, I think a lot of it, which is really helpful, is honestly that I, I still have a flip phone. Yeah. And just having, not, not having the ability to like, uh, you know, go on the machine and be like, oh, what, what are the strangers thinking of me today? It's like a helpful block. You know, I, I'm happy removing that option from my daily life. And then my sisters have been kind of great about pre-reading everything for me. And they give me a heavily redacted version of what's going on. So everything sounds great. It sounds fine. <laughs> yes? Question. Do you seem like you quite like actively avoid technology and you no, I just write on a laptop. Um, I know it would be a lot better if I like lit my writing candle and, like, <laughs> put on my writing cape. <laughs> but no, it's just on a laptop, which is, it is a strange thing. I think about that a lot. Um, how, you know, other artists, they get to have all these accessories and sort of special brushes and paints. And writers, you know, it's the same thing you, like, look at your fucking email on. <laughs> it's like, I wish there was a little more separation. Yep. One more, since are you paying your sister to uh, that sister, she said all I had to do was put her in the acknowledgments. And she's in there along with all the other lazy ones who did nothing for me. <laughs> um, all right, one more question. The ceremonial last question. You asked. Oh, I asked like 20. <laughs> we went through mine. Now, all right, well, let's give Emma an enormous round of applause. <laughs> You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon. <laughs>